am my car. I am my clothes. I am my bank account. I am my house. I obey my thirst. I have it my way. I just do it. I deserve a break today. I double my pleasure, double my fun. I live the high life because I'm worth it. I'm looking out for number one. I wait for nothing. I have a million choices. I get what I want. I do what's best for me. I spend my time where I want to spend it. No one wastes it but me. I have the world at my fingertips. If it doesn't work, I'll throw it out and get a new one. If I'm uncomfortable, I leave. There's another place just down the street. If I'm unhappy, I'm missing something. I find it. I buy it. If I want it, I get it. I accumulate. I collect. I acquire. I take. I use. I devour. I consume. I am not the center of the universe, but I'm the center of mine. I want to know what's in it for me. I want to know what I get out of it. I'm here to find happiness. I live for comfort. I exist to be served. The world exists to serve me. I am the customer. The customer is king. I am king. I think I saw a gas price in there, 289. Man, were those the days or what? The, the good old days when gas was under $3 a gallon. Uh, but that is truly uh, a portrait of uh, the consumer. Uh, it's truly a portrait of uh, our natural inclinations. Um, Hayden Robinson is uh, a professor of preaching at uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and he's written multiple, multiple books on the subject of preaching, and there's probably nobody in, in the world who is recognized as the authority on the subject more so than he is. And some might even say that nobody in the past thousand years is more of an expert on uh, the, the process of, of preparing, delivering, everything that has to do with, uh, with a sermon. And I remember reading an article uh, by him a few years ago that said something to this effect. He said that as a preacher, as soon as you feel like you are beating that horse to death, as soon as you are sick of talking about something, repeating the same thing over and over, most of your listeners are just catching on to it, or they're just catching on to the fact that this is something that's really important. Um, so, you know, Jesus has said that if we want to come after him, we have to do three things, and we've been beating this horse. We have been going over this and over this and over this. So here's a pop quiz, just to make sure, just to see where you guys are, to make sure that this is all soaking in. What are the three things that Jesus has told us that we must do if we're going to come after him? Raise your hands. Sam, you, you deny, yourself. deny yourself. Okay, that's one. Deny yourself. <laughs> what else? I know that you know all three of them then. Okay, good. Kurt? Take up your cross. Take up your cross. What's the third thing? Follow him. Follow him. Right. So those are the three things that Jesus has told us that, we, uh, that we're supposed to do if we're going to come after him. And I realize that we've beat this horse to death, but so much of what we've covered since that verse has flowed right out of that verse, right out of those principles that he laid out there. And the things that we're going to talk about today are going to follow suit as well. Because if we're being honest, those three things, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus are so, so challenging to carry out at times. And, and so we're prone We've got this, this natural inclination to just file them away because it's so difficult for us to consistently do. But these are three things that we have to constantly have at the fronts of our minds. Now, before we look at our passage today, I want us to consider what the opposites of these three qualities would look like. Uh, first of all, the first quality is denying yourself. So the, the opposite of that would be having a tendency to live in form, uh, first and foremost for ourselves. 
like this video that we just watched. Uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars have been made by corporations who have fed into that instinctive human mentality, that instinctive human attitude that says it's all about me. I mean, uh, have it your way. You know, corporate slogan, one of the one of the most famous corporate slogans of all time. Believe me, I am sure they made so many millions, if not billions, of dollars just on that slogan. The customer is king. Treat them like the king because that's what everybody wants and that's what will keep them coming back. It's this attitude that says it's about me, it's about what I like. I'm the customer and the customer is king, so I am the king. And as we saw in this opening clip, man, this, this mentality is prevalent in the world. In the world. But it's totally contrary to the Christian mentality, the Christian life. And so for that reason... We have to remain on vigilant guard against that type of attitude seeping into our minds. Listen to what James says, James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what he's saying is if we accept rather than than challenge and overcome this self-centered mentality, we're not denying ourselves. We're doing the opposite. And James tells us that we're, we're basically acting like an enemy of God. We're refusing to surrender. If, and if we were to, to uh, summarize what the opposite of denying yourself looks like, it would be refusing to surrender. Secondly, this, uh, the opposite of taking up our cross means that we are resisting the, the growth that the Holy Spirit is leading us to. Feeding the flesh. We're, we're unhappy about something, and rather than seeing it as a chance to demonstrate love and, and patience and kindness toward others, maybe we get hostile. Maybe we get frustrated, and maybe we just we give in to that inclination, and we, we consistently make it about us instead of about Jesus. Rather than putting to death the selfish desires of the flesh, we embrace them. And if we were to summarize this, I'd say it's refusing to submit. Refusing to submit to, to what the Holy Spirit is leading us to. And third, the opposite of following Jesus is obviously to walk away from Jesus, to not be like Jesus. It's to demonstrate qualities that aren't Christ-like, that, that he didn't personify. Things like selfishness, greed, uh, just selfish ambition, anxiety maybe even, things like these. You know, Jesus came to serve, and so maybe the opposite we could say is it's refusing to serve rather than following after Jesus. Now, in the time that has passed, chronologically, in, in the text, uh, in the time that's passed since Jesus spelled out these three things in the previous chapter that we must do, uh, Mark has given us this contrast uh, between the glimpse that some of the disciples had of the kingdom on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then as they came down from the mountain, they got basically kind of a glimpse of, of hell. They got this glimpse of, of life uh, filled with evil and, and suffering and things like that. The, the nine disciples who hadn't gone up on the mountainside had tried to exercise this unclean spirit, this demon from a, bo- uh, from a boy, but they had failed. Why? Because they had actually demonstrated the exact opposite qualities that Jesus had told them they must embrace if they're going to come after him. Now, when we left off, Jesus had explained that the reason that they failed was a lack of fellowship or a lack of reliance on God, and they'd attempted to do it basically by their own power and by their own authority, which is, by the way, the way that the world operates, doing things by their own power, their own 
authority, but it's not the way that things operate in the kingdom, as we're going to see today. So let's see what happens <clears throat> from here. We pick it up in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So Jesus has taken this, this opportunity uh, while they're going to be traveling to get some alone time with his disciples. They're leaving Galilee, and they're taking side roads on the way to Capernaum because he doesn't want people to know that he's out and about. He doesn't want people flocking to him. Uh, Mark tells us that the reason that he's doing that is because he's teaching the disciples. Um, so, he, so he doesn't want anyone to know about it because he doesn't want it to be interrupted. They've got some place to get to, but he wants the 12 to be fully prepared for what is to come not too, you know, in the not-too-distant future. So the subject that Jesus wants them to be educated about is the crucifixion and the resurrection. And, you know, he, he's talked to him about it before, and, they, they, you know, they, they've, they've heard this before, uh, and he's doing it again. He's just driving this point home. Some of them, you know, have this glimpse of Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he needs them to understand that the road to glory has to go through the cross. It has to. There is no other way. Without the cross... There is no glory. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, basically what the disciples saw is Jesus does not have to go to the cross. He's choosing to go to the cross. He has the power and authority to escape it, but he's willfully going to it because without the cross, there is no glory in his mind. So they have to go to the cross. And the disciples are confused. We know that you know, he's, he's talked about this stuff before, but notice that, that Jesus introduces a new element this time. This time, uh, he, he adds the fact that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And the Greek word that gets translated as delivered here is also commonly translated as to betray. So the, the, the term delivered has an element of betrayal in it. And so this is the first time that the disciples have heard anything about Jesus being betrayed. This is news to them. The whole thing is so repulsive to them. You know, th this isn't the plan. That's what they're thinking. This isn't the plan. So it's so repulsive to them, it makes no sense to them whatsoever. You know, one of the, one of the lyrics that we were singing this morning is, is, thank you for the cross. And it's easy to sing that. But the disciples were confused by the cross. Jesus is speaking in, in pretty plain language here, but the words are just flying right over their heads. And I'd say that this was Greek to them, uh, except that Jesus and his followers were probably all fluent in Greek. The whole New Testament is written in Greek. So it definitely was not Greek to them. And, you know, maybe if, if turnaround is fair play, maybe we should say it was English to them. Um, yeah, they just weren't getting it. But what we see here is that even though they're confused and they do have questions, they are afraid to approach Jesus with questions. And here's, this is confusing. This is really confusing because if you look through the gospel narratives, through all four of them, there is not a single time that Jesus scolds or rebukes a person for coming to him with a question or for asking a question. So what is the source of this fear? Why are they afraid? I mean, uh, you know, they, they've, they've been with Jesus for at least two years now. And here they are, they're afraid to come to him with a question? 
That's, that's really kind of weird. But see, what we have to understand is that this fear that they had wasn't necessarily of Jesus per se. It was of what Jesus was saying was going to happen to him and consequently them because they are uh, following, they're part of his group. They're following after him. But this fear is, is prevalent in their minds. And so they're, they're afraid to go there. They don't even want to go there. This wasn't part of the game plan as far as they were concerned. And so it, it made no sense to them. They're basically saying, nah, I, I, don't, I don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. They're afraid. And that's why they're not understanding. But here's the thing. See, a lot of, a lot of followers of Jesus, uh, even today, they get confused about uh, what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus, or maybe just the importance of those things. And what happens is, is ignorance uh, of this type of submissive lifestyle, this, what, what Jesus called last, uh, last week prayer, uh, like a lifestyle of prayer, a lifestyle of worship. And ignorance of this type of lifestyle stunts a person's spiritual growth. Um, when Christina and I were getting ready to, um, this is an embarrassing story, um, when we were getting ready to buy our house in Las Vegas, there were all these, these holdups. All these things that were preventing us from, from uh, closing on this house. And we were both stressed out like to the max. Now, keep in mind, I was, what, 23, 24. We'd been married uh, almost two years. No, we'd been married just over two years. That's right. And I wasn't very good at dealing with discomfort or confrontation or things that I just didn't like. Uh, and so I decided that instead of sticking around and dealing with the holdups, like I should have, I decided, uh, you know, this is a great time to drive four hours north of Las Vegas and go fishing. And so I left Christina to deal with the problems. Guys, don't ever do that. Uh, man, oh man, was that a mistake. Uh, you know, I, I would say it's taken me years to, to, to live that one down, but I'm not sure I'll ever live that one down. That's still an embarrassing one to talk about. But you see, I preferred ignorance. I preferred just not knowing and getting away from it rather than dealing with the things that were making me uncomfortable. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing here. All 12 of them, and they're, they're just like, they're burying their heads in the sand rather than dealing with the situation, just like, you know, maybe we all do to a certain extent from time to time. But as we've seen, and as we're going to see, Jesus is not just going to be content with them remaining ignorance. Um, Arnold Glasgow said this. He said, it is harder to conceal knowledge, to conceal ignorance, than to acquire knowledge. It's harder to conceal ignorance than to acquire knowledge. So the disciples are choosing, willfully choosing ignorance. And that's something that Jesus is fully aware of, and so he's going to actually call them out on it. Uh, let's go on to the next verses, verses 33 and 34. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, when Jesus was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Now here we catch a glimpse of the connection between ignorant and being delusional. Uh, you know, just having been told um, that Jesus is going to be betrayed, that he's going to be crucified, but that he is going to rise again, the disciples uh, react to that. They respond to that. You know, they're afraid. And so they decide, you know, this is a great time to argue about who is the greatest among us. Um, man, I can only imagine what that must have sounded like. And we don't know exactly what provoked this discussion or 
why this came up, but I would guess that it had something to do, you know, looking at the context as a whole, uh, I would guess that it would have something to do with the, uh, some of the disciples having witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, you know, they very possibly could have taken that as an indication that they were greater than, all, than the other nine. Uh, you know, the, the three got to go up and see Jesus. The nine stayed down and were just messing up while they're trying to get this unclean spirit out of a boy. So an argument of sorts takes place about which of them is the greatest. Now, apparently, um, we don't know how it happened or when it happened, but apparently at some point, Jesus has distanced himself from the disciples during this conversation. But it seems reasonable to think that perhaps the reason that he distanced himself from them was because he was either fully aware that this conversation was taking place, or he knew that it was going to take place, and he's just going to let it happen. By asking the disciples what they were talking about, Jesus is trying to pull the hearts of the disciples back out of the darkness and back into the light, because that's what Jesus does. He takes what's in the dark, and he exposes it to the light. And by the way, Jesus is not asking this question about what they were talking about, because he doesn't know. There's never a time that Jesus asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. No, the reason he's asking is not because he doesn't know. It's because he's using that question to pull them out of the darkness. Um, and, the, and his question is just met by awkward silence. Kind of like when you're expecting a video to start and it doesn't. And everybody just sits there looking at a blank wall, right? Awkward silence is the response. You know, the, the disciples had either failed to realize that it is impossible. It is impossible to escape God's presence. He is always in our presence, whether we realize it or not. So either they had uh, failed to realize that it's impossible to escape God's presence, or they had yet to fully grasp the fact that this was God in the flesh that they were dealing with. It's one or the other. How, how different would they have acted if they would have realized that Jesus could hear them? He's not physically among them, but he is there. He knows what's going on. He knows what the topic is. How different would they have acted if they had been mindful of his presence? And by the way, that, quite, that same question can be turned on us today. How different would we act if we really knew, really realized, really acted like Jesus was in our presence? And you know, it's, it's kind of unbelievable that they would be having a conversation like this not only um, you know, on the heels of being told about you know, what was coming, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, but this is right after the disciples, uh, nine of the disciples, had completely failed in their attempts to exercise this unclean spirit. I mean, they're talking about who's the greatest after they've failed miserably? That, that's kind of strange. Who among them is the greatest? You know, None of them. I mean, they, they've all pretty much made fools of themselves over the past couple of days. The only exceptions, you know, Peter was, you know, he, he said, you know, let's build three tabernacles, made a fool of himself. The nine disciples, they failed, made fools of themselves. The only two exception, exceptions might be James and John, but their time's coming. Just wait until we get to the next chapter. Boy, they are going to make fools of themselves. Uh, so their time's coming too. But we should also keep in mind that this is probably a week, maybe two weeks uh, since Jesus told them the necessity of denying themselves, taking up their crosses, and following him. To follow him means to be like him, and yet we never see Jesus, not once in all of Scripture, patting his own back or, or beating his chest, you know, singing his own praises. Look how great I am. You know, he, he never does that. 
He never does that because he's got a humble spirit. He came to serve. They're not denying themselves. Instead, what they're doing is boasting about themselves. They're affirming themselves, if not promoting themselves. They're not taking up their cross. They saw this as a chance for them to be prideful rather than showing humility and putting to death the desires of the flesh. And they're not following Jesus. They're not embracing the qualities that Jesus demonstrated. The fact that Jesus is completely aware of what they had talked about is actually made evident in the narrative that follows. So we we go to uh, verses 35 to 37 here. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And this is really interesting. Jesus calls them basically into a huddle. He calls them all together to himself, and he's going to tell them what it means to be, to be great. He's going to give them an object lesson, but first he acknowledges the subject of their discussion. Who is the greatest? He knows. He, he just puts it out there. You know, this is, this is what you guys are talking about. I know it. And I think it shows his compassion that he doesn't give them a tongue lashing for having this conversation. They deserve it. They deserve it. But he doesn't give it to them. He doesn't rebuke them for, being, uh, for wanting to be the greatest, for being prideful. He doesn't rebuke them for any of this stuff. Do you see that? I mean, he doesn't scold them at all. I, I, I probably would have. Good thing I'm not Jesus. Um, instead, he instructs them on how to be the greatest. He says, okay, you want to be the greatest? I'm going to teach you how to be the greatest. So what makes a, a great worldly leader? Like if you were to, to uh, look at, at some of the great leaders in the world, whether they be political or uh, corporate or whatever, uh, you know, a great CEO or whatever, a uh, great supervisor maybe even, not, not just a, a, a powerful person in terms of world power, but uh, corporate power, just a, a supervisor. I mean, I think generally you look for things like influence, power, the ability to persuade or, uh, or maybe even intimidate others if you're a pit boss in Las Vegas, uh, which is how casinos operate. I mean, you get some guy back there who's willing to give somebody a tongue lashing for eight hours a day, and oh yeah, he'd be a great pit boss. And so Jesus is saying that if, if this is the means by which they want to establish their greatness, power, persuasion, intimidation, things like that, if this is the way that they want to establish their greatness, their position might be the greatest in man's eyes, but it is the least in God's eyes. Why? Because there's this negative correlation between greatness in one's own eyes and denial of self. A negative correlation means the more you have of one, the less you have of the other, kind of like a seesaw. If you have a, a high degree of, uh, of opinion about yourself, you have a very low denial of self. And conversely, that's true too. Uh, so that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. The greater you feel about yourself, the more you expect to be served to have this consumerist attitude that says, it's all about me. I'm the customer. Customer is king, so I am the king. And so the less likely you are to be focused on serving others. The key here is that true greatness corresponds directly, a positive correlation uh, with humility. True greatness corresponds directly with humility. William Law once said, You can have no greater sign of confirmed pride than when you think you are humble enough. 
Uh, that's a great quote. I mean, uh, you see, the temptation is to say, well, I'm already humble. I'm like the most humble person I have ever met. I am the king of humility. Uh, and I, I think, you know, we can all see that that misses the point. We can all see the, the flaw there. Um, but you see, someone who is truly great not only doesn't try to establish their greatness, but they also don't think that they are all that great. Uh, instead of demanding that things be centered on pleasing them so that they feel valued, someone who is truly great will want to know what they can do to make <coughs> others feel valued. They'll want to know what they can do to make others feel important. So if you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be willing to put all of your own interests aside and focus on serving others rather than being served and living with this mentality that conveys the message that you are the center of your own universe. And man, that is hard. For me, for, for everybody, that, that is hard. See, in God's kingdom, service isn't a stepping stone to greatness. Service is greatness. It is. It's not a stepping stone. It just is greatness. It's the only kind of greatness that is recognized as such. The way to greatness as God defines greatness is not by trying to be great, not by trying to be influential or, or motivating or self-promoting, but it's by your willingness to put others first, to be the least and to put others before yourself. Greatness isn't achieved by having other people serve you. It's achieved by serving others. I mean, if you look at a worldly leader, you, know, you, you, you ask, how many servants does he have, you know? That's what, that's what establishes his greatness. How many servants did Saddam Hussein have or, or even bin Laden? I mean, he, he's got a whole army or had a whole army. We need to understand that God stands opposed to what and whom the world considers great. See, God's definition of greatness is diametrically opposed to the world's definition of greatness. It, it's, it's total opposites. It's like night and day. It's like black and white. The measure by which a person is deemed great in the world's eyes is how many people serve them, how many people are under them. The measure by which a person is deemed great in God's eyes, however, is how many people do you serve? And what's the heart that you serve with? Are you doing it because you're trying to promote yourself? You know, that's obviously, you know, I'm the most humble person I know. That's not it. No, it's how many people do you serve just because you can, and you love them, and you want to make them feel valued. Now, serving can, can mean a lot of different things when we're talking about church. It can mean a lot of different things to different people because we're all gifted in different ways. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're all di- we've all got a different variety of gifts. But there are some standards of serving that I would say are universally valid for everyone who wants to follow Jesus, kind of like minimum expectations. For example, Paul said this, In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he said, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Is that serving? Yeah, that's serving. I mean, it's possible to translate the second half of the verse as attempt or or, or strive to out-honor one another. The ESV, English Standard Version, uh, which I think is maybe the, the best version out there, one of the best modern translations, no doubt, says, outdo one another in showing honor, honoring others before yourself. That just as this, be better than everyone else at putting the interests of others before your own and thereby honoring them above yourself. Because if you're able to do that, you're serving the way that God would have you serve them. You're serving with the heart 
that God would have you serve them with. Here at Linwood Evangelical Free Church, we have three things that we value, three values. Number one, love God. Love God. That's, that's where it starts. Love God, love people, and serve God by serving people. And this, this, this concept of serving other people, putting other people before yourself, honoring others and not demanding honor in return. This is one of the things that makes Christianity just radical. One of the most, it is the most radical religion in the world ever. Because this whole concept of putting others before yourself for, for God's glory not for your own, but just for God's glory. This whole concept is so contrary to natural human ways, so contrary to human thinking, so contrary to human instinct. It's radical. It is, it's very, very, very challenging. Even for the most mature believers, it's challenging, but that's what God calls us to do. It, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things, you know, you, you can remember it, but it's really difficult for people to wrap their minds around it and to put it into action. It's easy to know these words, but to actually do them is a constant struggle and challenge. Now, Jesus knows that the disciples are having trouble wrapping their minds around this concept. And so he gives them what we would call, you know, for, for those of you who, who have taught before, this is called an object lesson. Uh, he brings a small child over. He wraps his arms around the child. He, he, he hugs the child. And he tells the disciples that receiving one like this in his name, in Jesus' name, is the same as receiving Jesus. And not only receiving Jesus, but the one who sent him. Jesus is basically saying, this is what greatness in my kingdom looks like. We need to understand what this child represents if we're going to understand what Jesus is teaching here, what he's saying here. Um, you know, first of all, it's really easy for a group of grown men to overlook the importance of a child, uh, for the child to come into their midst and just be completely ignored because a, a child doesn't have a lot to offer, but rather you'd better have a lot to offer if a child comes into the midst of a, of a group of grown men, especially. Um, so, so the child requires a huge amount of attention and uh, you know they, can't, they need things done for them. They can't do a lot of things for themselves. They need things done for them. That's the type of person that this child represents. See, a child isn't going to advance your career. Uh, a child isn't going to scratch your back if you scratch theirs. Uh, you know, to receive them uh, for the sake of Christ is something that Jesus is saying, that this, is, this is difficult, but this is what I want you to do. And so that type of person, somebody that seems like they have nothing to offer, that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, the child represents. The point is to receive those who aren't necessarily going to have a whole lot to offer just for the sake of Jesus. That's what it means to welcome them, to receive them, to accept them in his name. And if we do this, it's the same as welcoming Jesus himself. And Jesus points out that we're not only receiving him, but we're receiving the one who sent him, God the Father. See, this is what it means. This is what it means to see people the way that God sees people. This is what it means to see people through God's eyes. It means that we value them just because they are people who were created in the image of God. We value them just for that reason. I mean, God valued them enough to send his only son to die for them 
And so how dare we reject them? Because if you reject that person, really what you're doing, Jesus is saying, is rejecting God. If you're not welcoming someone who has nothing to offer, you're also rejecting God. So our, our, our values here are love God, love people, all people. All people, all, all ages, all races, all nationalities. Love people and serve God by serving people. And the minimum that I think that we can do in this capacity is to honor others. One of the secrets, you guys know that when I was in Arkansas, I was planning a multi-ethnic church, and I got to spend a lot of time with Mark DeMoz from Mosaic Church of, uh, of Central Arkansas. And at that church, uh, which is one of the most successful multi-ethnic churches in America, uh, it's not uncommon at the English service to sing songs in Spanish for those who are of Hispanic descent, who are, are there. Uh, of course, they prefer to sing in English, but the Hispanic people prefer to sing in Spanish. And so to honor the Spanish-speaking people, the English-speaking people will sing songs in Spanish. And conversely, the, the Hispanic congregants uh, willfully uh, participate in singing English worship as a means of honoring their English-speaking brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, also, the, the, you know, it's, it's a good mix of whites, Hispanics, uh, blacks, I mean, all different races, all different uh, nationalities. Um, you know, the, the white congregants will also honor the black congregants by singing songs that you might call uh, black worship in their, in their worship services, in the, in the black genre, um, black gospel genre. And the black congregants will honor the white congregants by singing contemporary uh, white worship, for, for lack of a better term. Um, but as a multi-generational church, you know, we're not a multi-ethnic church, but we are a multi-generational church. And we can take this same principle that they're using there. And one of the ways that we can honor one another above ourselves is, is with our worship. Uh, young people, young people, and I'm, I'm going to remain ambiguous here. You know, if you consider yourself to be a young person, I'm speaking to you. Young people, honor your elders who are here among us, your brothers and sisters in the Lord who are older than you are, who are in attendance here by participating in singing hymns and choruses before, from before your time. Those are the songs of their heart. You know that those are the songs that they grew up singing. And let me tell you something. You don't understand this now, but you will understand this someday. It blesses their heart like you would not believe for them to hear you singing that song. Someday you'll understand that. For now, I, I know, it, it seems like, wow, this, this hymn, I, I don't get it. Do it anyway to honor your other brothers and sisters who are in here. Someday you will be in the same boat. Someday, you know, I, I've already got my speech planned out for, for someday, you know, when I'm old and I'm like, can I get some Chris Tomlin around here? You know, <laughs> nobody sings David Crowder songs anymore. Man, what, what are we going to do? What's, what's the world come to? That's, that's how it's going to be someday. Someday people are going to look at the music that is of your heart, young ones, and say, wow, that is different. It's different. And you're going to want to hear them sing it anyway. Trust me on that one. And for those of you who consider yourselves to be in the elder generation, and again, I'm being ambiguous here. <laughs> Maybe I'm one of them. You know, I don't know. Um, you know, you can honor the younger generation the same way by participating and singing the contemporary songs that we sing. You know, I'm not sure which one of those sides that I'm on, but uh, maybe that depends on who you ask. Uh, Maddie, am I old? Yes. Okay, see? <laughs> that wasn't just a yes. That was a yes. Of course you are, Dad. 
So yeah, you know, maybe I'm in the middle. That's what, that's what I'll hope. Uh, but listen, you know, I, I know the frustration from both sides, both sides. I know the frustration of learning new worship songs. I, I know what that's like. But listen, it's not about the song. It's about the person that the song is about, really. And I, I'm a firm believer in learning both old and new songs as a means of keeping my worship and my, my heart of worship fresh and alive. Uh, last year, remember when Lloyd and, and Doris Anderson came and visited us? Uh, after, um, I think it was the second time they stopped by. After the second time they stopped by, uh, I, I was talking with them right over here by the piano. And they were telling me about how recently uh, the, the staff at the church had decided that they were just going to throw out all the hymnals and stop singing hymns. And they, yeah, and, and there, there was really no discussion about it with, with the people who, who loved singing from the hymnals, who loved singing hymns. There, there was no discussion at all. It's just hymns are gone. We're done with that. And let me ask you, did, did Doris and, and Lloyd, did they feel honored? No. They, they, felt, they felt cast aside. They felt unimportant. Because, you know, I, I'm not sure that, you know, I want to say they felt disrespected. Uh, and I, I, you know, I'm not saying that the, that the church intentionally disrespected them, but that was how they felt. They felt cast aside. And so Jesus is telling us here that when we receive and thus submit ourselves to serving others, whether that's simply or not so simply by honoring them, or whether it's physically serving them with your spiritual gifts, in some capacity, depending on what your spiritual gifts are. There is no difference between serving people and serving Jesus. It is the same simultaneous action. If you are honoring people, you are honoring Jesus. If you are not honoring people, you are not honoring Jesus. So the principle here is to honor people because by honoring people, you are serving them in, the, in a capacity, and by doing that, you are honoring the Lord. Chuck Smith is a well-known pastor who, uh, who talks about how he used to grumble when he first planted his church. Which he, he started a huge uh, church movement, by the way. He's the one who started Calvary Chapel, if you guys have heard of Calvary Chapel. Uh, but early in his ministry, he used to grumble as he went out to the parking lot every Sunday and scooped up cigarette butts that his congregation had left in the parking lot. And one day he got convicted with a thought. What if Jesus personally asked me, to specifically do this. Do something that I absolutely hate, cleaning up dirty cigarette butts. His answer was, of course I'd do it. If Jesus asked me to do this, I, I wouldn't hesitate. And from that point forward, he cleaned up cigarette butts with a joyful spirit, with the right attitude. See, when we do things for his sake, when we commit to doing everything that we do for his sake, rather than our own, our perspective is going to make all the difference. You know, the disciples came into this passage seeking to claim power, seeking to claim prestige and all these other things that the world considers great. But what Jesus has done here is he has flipped it around. He's redefined greatness for them. He's shown them, and by showing them, he's shown us what God's standard of greatness is. Jesus has thoroughly corrected them here. Why? I mean, he hasn't rebuked them. But he has corrected them. He's corrected their theology. He's straightened them out. It's because their vision of greatness, their, their understanding of greatness would obstruct the way of the Lord. No, denying themselves, 
taking up their cross, following Jesus, those are not easy things to do. But service, submission, and sacrifice would be vital to the early church's survival. If they were going to start the church movement, the Christian church movement, if we are going to be here today, those are the things that they needed to embrace. Service, submission, and sacrifice. By the way, those, those same qualities are important today. Vitally important. You see, this is the heart that's longing for Jesus. Hungry for more of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, would go on to set the ultimate example of service, submission, and sacrifice on the cross. Those are the qualities that you'll find on the road that leads to glory. And those are qualities that were demonstrated in the fullest and greatest capacity in history on the cross. There is no place for this consumerist mindset at the cross. That's where we leave it behind because it's incompatible with service, submission, and sacrifice. Our flesh would pull us away from those qualities and there are going to be times that we resist the, the cross just like the disciples have here. But because of the cross, know this, because of the cross, there is an immeasurable provision of God's grace and forgiveness. This passage today is an invitation to know God. And not only to know God in a general sense, but more specifically, to know his heart for people. To experience his heart for people, all people. See, nobody but Jesus, nobody but Jesus can lead us to God. Nobody. There is nobody else who can be a mediator between us and God. It's by receiving Jesus that we receive God. And for that reason, we're thankful for the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we admit the fact that we, uh, that we have these habits of being selfish, of being like consumers when it comes to church, when it comes to everything, God. And I pray that you would give us the experience of your heart for service. Teach us, Lord, to to serve others, and to serve you by, by serving others, Lord. I pray right now that you would just lay on our heart convictions for what types of giftings we have, spiritual gifts we have, that we can put to use in serving others. Lord, we thank you for this passage. It is radical. It is difficult for us to swallow. And I just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will help this to soak in so that it gets demonstrated in our lives. We love you. And because we love you, we want to submit to you. We want to yield to you for your glory, because it's all about you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. 
Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.